what is a spiritual person according to scripture? Is there a, you know, a hierarchy of spiritual people in a local church? Like, do the elders have a ranking system that we keep check of? You know, this is our, you know, do we have like a Pro Bowl team of spiritual rankings in the church? I think you know the answer to that. Let me back up some. Why is there something so natural in us that wants to impress others? look a certain way, and feel good about our goodness. This summer, the boys and I have loved watching the 1984 classic, The Karate Kid. It deals with themes of how some think they're better than others based on their status. It puts a healthy emphasis on competing to win, but not on thinking highly of yourself. In fact, it's, that's the way of the antagonist of the film, if you know the film. Sensei Kreese, in contrast to the wise Mr. Miyagi. Kreese's pride is his downfall in the film. He appears to be a man consumed with not losing face. Yes, I'm giving spoiler alerts if you've never seen it. It's been over 30 years, folks. I can talk about it. All right. Now, um, he appears to be a man consumed with not losing face, if you know the film. And I think often we like to insert ourselves as if we're the, we're the Daniel or we're the Mr. Miyagi in a story like that. But I think there's a little sensei crease in all of our hearts that's not only competitive, but at times can look for ways to assure ourselves that we might be a little bit above others. And we can work to keep up appearance in our social cues. And we feel this in our natural impulses through our associations, through politics, cultures, school choices, authors, preachers, and other affinities. We can feel and project this all because of pride. And this attitude can come into a local church and change the way people treat one another. Sometimes when we are annoyed with people in a church, we can start to drift into sinful favoritism and pride. And friends, doesn't this seem wrong to you and me? Shouldn't that seem odd to those of us who've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ? Should we be so worried about what people think of us to, to the neglect of devotion to our precious Lord and Savior? It's sad. Some often foster uh, cliques and hierarchies in the local church to promote their own impressiveness. But does God want us to live in envy and in pursuit of climbing the ranks the way? Well, that's the way of the world, isn't it? If that is the case, if that's the way the church is, then what's so special about being a part of a, a church? I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you've been keeping up with the book, you know there are a lot of problems in this local church, especially there was the problem of pride among those whom the scholars identify as, quote, the elite. The elite of the church found ways to create, you know, prideful separation. Let me try again. 
Note to self, do not put a muffler that, law, that loud on a vehicle. <laughs> All right, let's try again. He's talking about the, we're talking about the elite here. They found ways to create prideful separation over their favorite teachers from an impressive fleshly sense, chapters one through four. That's how they found their pride and their teachers. And the same, quote, elite did nothing uh, in their advanced, so to speak, knowledge about the sex scandals, the lawsuits, the prostitution and divorce. They boasted from their knowledge that they somehow were justified to eat at banquets dedicated to idols. And likely the elite were also those who tossed off gender roles in the home in their so-called knowledge. And their picture to be, appears to be one of constant selfishness, sinful separation, and segregation within the local church. And it came to a tipping point when they were doing this in their wicked perversions of the Lord's Supper, which we left off in last week in chapter 11. The meal that Jesus instituted to preach the gospel and the return of Christ, the ordinance that Jesus commanded to showcase unity in the church and encourage souls was now being used to make people, the poor, feel less than the elite. And just when you thought things couldn't get worse, enter chapter 12. Paul now has to tackle the view that some thought they were better than others because they had been granted certain speaking gifts in the church assembly. They were the ones in the spotlight and therefore worthy of more admiration. So, when you come to chapter 12, you can always feel that pastoral or, or parental sense of the, the Apostle Paul like, oh, now, this, let me talk about, you wrote to me about this, let me address this now. Beginning there in verse 1. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagan, some of some, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to stop right there. There's some important things that we do not need to go by too quickly here. There's a lot in this chapter, from chapter 12 all the way through 14. Some of my beloved pastor friends have preached 12 through 14 as one sermon. I am not as gifted as they are. I'm going to slow down a little bit and pause here because I do not want to blow by this. It's critical for interpreting the passages, verses 1 through 3, going all the way through chapter 14. So we know from chapter 11 to chapter 14, he's addressing how they come together as a church how they were adorning themselves, their gender roles, the Lord's Supper, and now spiritual gifts. But if you look at, flip over to chapter 14, verse 37, it forms the whole discussion here where he addresses those who think they are, quote, the spiritual. This chapter, if you look at uh, chapter 12 and following, you can hold your place there at 1437, but the verses that follow, like 3 through 11, chapter 12, 3 through 11, I apologize for the confusion there and your page turning. This chapter, this in chapter 12, is it, three, 1 through 11 is about the allotment of spiritual gifts given to believers 
by the one spirit for the common good of the congregation. It's the allotment. Many gifts, one spirit. Paul says it again. One Lord, one God, many gifts. And verse 3 is key to setting the tone before he goes into his pastoral instruction. Verse 3 sets the tone. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That confession is key and critical to reading this section because it reaches back to what he already said in chapter 2, verse 14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Look again at chapter 12, 1 through 3. The first three verses are united by the theme of knowing. Verse 1, he talks about do not be uninformed or ignorant. Verse 2, you know. Verse 3, I want you to know. You see that theme of knowing, verses 1 through 3. The knowledge in all three verses has to do with the overriding theme of spiritual people as God's Word defines them. When someone confesses in truth that Jesus is Lord, it is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. It is a manifestation of His power. And Paul is setting it up here. If you have Christ, you have the Spirit of God. Be humble and submit to Him because this makes a person spiritual. Let's just get the foundation right. Let's go back to the Gospel, square one, and set the tone. Here's the central point. And this is part one, because we're going to come back to the same central point next week. True believers possess the Holy Spirit. True believers possess the Holy Spirit. And point number one, or part one today, they are enabled to affirm the Lordship of Christ. They are enabled to affirm the Lordship of Christ. Now, before I get into the teaching and application here of the sermon, let me set a listener's guide. It's always helpful just kind of tee it up a little bit and pray that God would set our hearts in the right place as we hear the Word of God this morning. Beloved, don't we need to be reminded of God's purposes and sovereign grace regularly? We don't, need to be, don't we need to be freshly encouraged to think less of ourselves and think more of God's mercy? I mean, it would, be, I would, it would be a misfire today if you walked away from the sermon and thought, man, God made the right choice in saving me. I mean, I was, I was worthy. I was a worthy recipient. I mean, I checked the boxes. If you hear that, you have not heard me today and you have not heard the scriptures. Some today, you need to be reminded of how God has loved you and how he has marked you in the seal of the Holy Spirit, and you have a home in heaven, and that Jesus is coming, and he's going to take you home with him. You need to dwell on that today and be encouraged. And some today need to, be remind, need to remember that, that the church is not like the world. There's no ladder to climb. Some of us love the point system, right? Um, there's no ladder to climb in, in, in God's household. There's no competition. There's no reward chart where the elders mark you off better for your achievements over others. Why? Because there's no such hierarchy. So love Jesus today because He first loved you. 
He chose to set His love on you because of His love. He just did it because He wanted to. Not because of anything, anything righteous in us. And then today, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You've never repented of sin and surrendered to Jesus Christ as King. Well, today, as you think of all the ambitions you have for this life, the one that should matter most is that you have been chosen by the grace of God, that God has shed His grace on you. That's what you should be concerned of. Am I one of God's children? I mean, how sad would it be to live your life hoping some group would affirm you and then you never think twice about the idea about God choosing to show mercy on you for your sins. Does God owe you mercy? Well, that would negate the term, wouldn't it? Today, I want you to contemplate God's royal authority to save, and I want to urge you to run to Jesus Christ as quick as you can. I pray God would help us as we look at His Word this morning. True believers possess the Holy Spirit. Point one, they are enabled to affirm the Lordship of Christ. First sub-point, verse one, they are informed about what a spiritual person is. They are informed about what a spiritual person is. Paul does not want them to be ignorant about this term, pneumatikos in the Greek. It's not the same term that will be used to discuss spiritual gifts in verse 4, which is charismata. You probably hear that charismatic, charismata in that term. These are two different terms. It's unfortunate here that the NIV rendered it spiritual gifts. The, the New American Standard, CSB, the KJV, and ESV all translate it as spiritual. And this adjective is used sometimes to describe gifts, and context will tell you when it's used that way. But elsewhere, it's about addressing people, spiritual ones, those who are spiritual. You see me? You, hear me? you see what I'm saying? In fact, from here through 14, Paul forms his inclusio of correcting and informing the so-called knowers about what true spiritual ones do. That's the same term. Look Now look at chapter 14, verse 37. is used to describe people, not gifts. Verse 37 of chapter 14, If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. I'm going to let them drive by. I just want to give you extra time to mark off the inclusio, chapter 12. Through 1437. You got it marked down in your Bible. Okay, now, but as we unpack this term in its context, listen to how it's translated in the familiar verse. Many of you know Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, listen to the text. You who are spiritual, you spiritual ones, should restore him gently, but watch yourself or, else, or, or you also may be tempted. So Paul is informing the church about true spiritual ones. This passage, contrary to many, many godly and faithful commentators, is not about some wanting some spiritual ecstasy which is getting out of control in the church service. So let me explain this. Order in the church service comes up in chapter 14. That's coming. Paul's gonna, that's going to be really explicit. And I can see how some take that position given that they read chapter 14. 
but it's not the point he's doing here in chapter 12. There's nothing in verses 1 through, through 11, if you look at chapter 12, about some having an ecstasy spiritual experience. There's nothing about that in those first 11 verses. It's about the allotment of gifts. What Paul's doing is something he's done over and over again. He's using, he's, 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 uh, using a rhetorical device to set them up just as he did in chapters 8 through 10. He's laying the rhetorical groundwork here to make clear that there are no spirit, super spiritual ones in the church. Look at the context. He hammers on the fact that God sovereignly distributes his gifts and gives each member a role in the body. So he's not correcting their services yet. He's correcting their hearts. <laughs> he's correcting the arrogance. You know, they thought they had idolatry down. They thought they had sexuality down. They thought they had gender down. And Paul has to come in and give them the theological foundation. He takes them back to basics. Paul says, now about the spiritual ones. You could put that in your margin. Now about the spiritual ones you asked me about. There are those who prize speaking. The context reveals that there are those who prize speaking in tongues as a sign of superiority, as you can see in chapter 14. So Paul is going to spend time from here through chapter 14 dismantling the idea that tongues somehow make someone more spiritual. It doesn't. And Paul, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, is absolutely brilliant in how he takes apart that notion right here at the beginning. Look at the text, verse 1. He says he doesn't want them to be ignorant, uninformed, fail to recognize the plain truth he's going to lay down for them right here about spiritual ones, spiritual people. And I wouldn't be surprised if it has a touch of irony in it because the Corinthians' apparent overconfidence in their superior knowledge. For Paul to say, I don't want you to be ignorant, might have stung a little bit to those who thought they knew it all. And remember, they thought they were in the know about idols too. They missed it. But here's what you need to take away and grow in as a disciple, and me too. The Word of God, when we pick it up, you can count on this, it will correct us. It regularly corrects and informs us it is our sole authority for life and practice. Thank God for the scriptures because we would walk around in a lot of ignorance today. And we do it every day and we need to have our minds, you follow me as Paul would say, renewed in the word of God. We need to have our minds renewed. So what do we glean from this verse? The text, the word of God, is the great corrector to our thoughts about God and living the Christian life, being exposed to the Word of God in faithful exposition. That's what exposition is to do, to expose the Scriptures, causes us to feel our need for constant correction and instruction and encouragement. And this example here shows us how to never think we've somehow arrived. When we get like that as Christians, where we have gotten to the place where we know we are in the know, we're not in good company. We should know the scriptures, but remain humble. It reminds us we need to study the Bible, but we also need to hear sound instruction. We need to read the Bible at home, and we need to hear sound preaching of the Bible. God gives grace by the, by the Holy Spirit. He, he equips and gifts teachers and preachers to help us understand the Bible. And it should be, their teaching should be so plain 
I pray that my teaching is plain for you to see. I hope that you see. I'm not making some stretch here. It should be obvious and in keeping with what's plain from God's Word. And so often a job of a pastor's study is to inform himself so he can inform the congregation. So church, I'm begging you, please pray for the preaching of God's Word. It, it, it hurts to see a church go on in ignorance and develop poor habits and harmful practices. Pray that the sermons are clear, convicting. Pray for members who don't see how critical it is to grow together in the assembly under the regular preaching of the Word. I've shared this illustration before, but it, for a long time, Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't want his sermons recorded because he said that sermon was for the church at that moment in that assembly used of the Holy Spirit. And I understood, I could respect what he was saying in that. There's something about when we're gathered together in that moment and God is at work through His Word. Friends, there have been times I have found helpful material in my study for members in need and they weren't there to listen to it. God ordained for the church to assemble for faithful preaching long before He, by His grace, made the printed Word accessible. The Word was to go forth preached in the power of the Spirit. The preached Word is critical as the man of God proclaims the Word of God to the people of God. So pray that the preaching informs us that it's tied to the text of Scripture so that we are not ignorant and uninformed about what God has clearly called the church to do. So church, church friends, are you coming prepared and prayed up for the service? Are you listening well or formulating a response before you've understood? Are you and I humble enough to know we are always in need to learn from the school of the Scriptures? To learn from the Scriptures, God's holy word. So... First sub-point there, they are informed about what a spiritual person is. They get information. They are informed. Second sub-point, they know what a true person of the Spirit is not. They know what a true person of the Spirit is not. Verse 2, look at verse 2. Verse 2 literally reads like this. When you were Gentiles slash pagans, you were dumb. You were, you were to dumb idols as you were led, being led away. Let me try that again. When you were Gentiles slash pagans, you were to dumb idols as you were led, being led away. The, they were, in perfect passive tense, led away to mute idols wherever that worship might lead them. The verb being led, as it's rendered in the Septuagint, the Gospels, and the book of Acts, simply means to lead someone from one point to another. That's all it means, to lead from one point to another. So the focus of the text is not, being, uh, is not about being blown away willy-nilly, being led away into various spiritual powers, but the focus is on the destination of leading to dumb idols, mute idols. It connotes, by the way, though, when he says that, he speaks of idols being mute or dumb, and, and idols are dumb. It connotes lifelessness and an inability to help. Lifelessness and an inability to help. Idols cannot save. They have no power. They cannot hear our prayers. They cannot speak to us. They symbolize, look at Paul's emphasizing here, their former ignorance. Mute idols never spoke to them and never gave them words to speak. And can't you see what Paul's doing here? Look at the verses. Look at what, can't you see what he's doing here? 
He is distinguishing what made them pagan before distinguishing what makes them truly spiritual. This made you pagan, setting up for verse 3. This is what makes someone spiritual. You see what he's doing in verse 2 and 3. He's distinguishing. And Paul says, Paul says there in verse 2, they know this to be the case. You know this is true. They know that in their past they were led to idols, however they were led and what that looked like. Commentators often know that they were literally went into physical processions in their customs. But back to the text, the, their previous experience showed they had to have their thinking about spiritual things transformed in light of divine revelation. Can't you see what Paul's doing? In the past, you were wrong about spiritual things. You probably still need correction now. Let's keep, let's keep doing some, some fundamentals here. Let's work on our blocking and tackling here. Because they, in the past, they didn't know the difference between true and false religion. And from this letter, you can tell they missed out on some big things again and again. You see, the lost world doesn't discern that each man-made God seeks to offer something slightly or significantly different to its potential worshipers. Let me say that again. I don't want you to miss this. Note to, I'm speaking to myself. Slow down, Garrett. Slow down. The lost world doesn't discern that each man-made God, idols, seeks to offer something slightly or significantly different to its potential worshipers. That's why there's so many. This is the God of such and such. This is the God of this. This is the God of that. The Bible says there's only one God, one Spirit. The same God is experienced by all of His people and blesses them in diverse ways. You can see how he's setting up the logic here, going from one God, diversified gifts. You see that? Read verses 4 through 11 today. You'll see he keeps saying that again and again. He's showing the contrast. In Christ, there is one God who makes himself known to his people in a great diversity of ways, all consistent with his perfect character. So can't you see? We don't need different gods for different needs or blessings but there's only one God, and He provides for our every need. We don't offer prayers to different patrons, patron saints. That's paganism. We, only, we come only to the one true God by the Son through the Holy Spirit. The Corinthians' pre-Christian spiritual experiences were thoroughly marked by deception, and some might be deceived even as they were hearing this letter read. Paul tells them that all their experiences of the past were invalid. Don't bring that into Christianity. Don't think, bring that thinking over here. Their previous experience is completely untrustworthy as a guide to the ways the one true God, of, of the one true God who they've come to know now in Christ Jesus. So there is an announcement to those who don't know Christ. Regardless of your background, it's all invalid if it's not unto the one true God through the Son by the Holy Spirit. It's all invalid. So just because someone claims spiritual experiences doesn't mean they're valid. It's not self-validating or self-authenticating. Pagans have experiences as well, but they're to be rejected since they're led by idols. So what does this mean for us? What does verse 2 have for us, Pastor? Well, what separates us from the world today is the sovereign grace of God 
that turns us from a life of worshiping created things to serve the one true living God. That's, that's got to be critical in your thinking, central, that God has turned us from a life of worshiping idols to serve Jesus Christ. We don't need to have a worship experience. We need to be turned from idols to serve the one true God. I often hear that language, can't wait to have a worship experience. That's not the language we want to go for. We want to go for transformation. Has your life been transformed? Now are you exalting Christ? Is your heart being helped? And this is the language Paul used in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4 and 9. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you, verse 9, for you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So here's the distinction. We either serve God or we're serving idols that cannot save us. And to my Christian friends, um, to my non-Christian friends who are listening this morning, this, the report, this report may not be what you want to hear, but God's Word says this is what we all need to hear. We are either serving God or creation. We have, every one of us out here today and listening online, every one of us have loved trusted and obeyed created things and false gods over God. That's what the Bible tells about. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled. We've all disobeyed God. Every single one of us. Today, people still put their hopes in politics. They put their hope in money. They put their hope in personal health. They put their hope in looks and pleasures above God. These are idols, and it is a sin against our Creator, and it is a cancer to our souls. And God, friends, if God is holy, He would be just to condemn us all for how we elevate good things in life and exalt them to our ultimate purpose above Him. Only, uh, only sinners like us could take good created things and make them ultimate things for ourselves. God would be just as the Creator to judge the world for our silly, ridiculous idols, our false religions that suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God has righteous indignation. He's not a drunk father coming home throwing a fit. He has a righteous indignation against sin, and it's pure and perfect against everything that exalts itself against His holy throne. Kings, kingdoms, cults, and self-righteousness are all abhorrent in His holy sight. And if you are not a Christian, that's the camp you are in today, and you are in grave danger. If you are a Christian, though, you have been rescued from the way of stupidity and foolishness against our holy God. And church, aren't you glad you're no longer a slave in service of idols of this age and the whims of your own feelings? Aren't you thankful for God's rescue of your soul. I mean, you and I are freed from putting our trust in pleasures as our ultimate pursuit. Our main ambition is not a, to go get a boat and a camper and to get across the bridge on this Lord's Day as fast as we can every weekend, trying to escape, trying to find this world's pleasures. Nothing against campers or boats, by the way. But that's not our ambition. That's not our drive. Jesus is everything to us. He has taken us across greater waters. The war, he's taken us across death. We are free from treasuring what the lost world under Satan treasures. And that's why we're here. That's why our lives are lived differently. 
our past experiences that run contrary to God have no place at all in informing our walk today. In false religion, you may get to rise up the ranks, but because of your human gifts and hard works, but not so in Christ, you don't get to do any of that in Jesus because only Jesus can save. We could never save ourselves. Every one of us in Christ had nothing to do with our salvation. We did all the sinning. Christ did all the saving. It was Jesus who perfectly imaged the Father. It was Adam and us that have distorted and sinned. It was Jesus who proved to be the true and perfect Son. It was Israel and us that despised the Father. It was Jesus who faced down the enemy of God's people. But it was us and Israel who ran away cowardly. It was Jesus who had every reason, namely His innocence, to walk away from the cross at Calvary, to walk away at the Garden of Gethsemane. But it was us who gave up serving God when things got tough. Friends, our record is poor. Jesus' record is perfect. He never sinned and He never fails. So let me plead with everyone who's listening this morning. Come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Take God's side against your sin. And trust not in yourself. You and I are never good enough. But trust in the sinless Son of God who bore our sins and transgressions at Calvary. Who bore our, our shame and God's wrath against our sin for any and all who'd repent and believe. And if you repent on this one who's been raised from the dead, God says He'll forgive you and cleanse you. He will justify you because of the merits of Christ. Put your trust in Jesus. Let's go back to square one, church. Come back to Christ. Believers know they were never inclined in the past to love God. We were led away. We were. We were. We were. But not anymore. A spiritual person is not a follower of the prince of the power of the air. No, verse 3, the, go into the last subpoint, tells the truth about enablement unto God. Third subpoint, they confess Christ only by the grace of the Holy Spirit. They confess Christ only by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, Paul says, Therefore, a lot of what he's just said, I want you to know. I want you to know what? No one speaking by the Spirit says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is not a contrast between inspired and uninspired utterances. That's not what he's dealing with here. There were not people cursing Jesus in the service in ecstatic utterance. That makes no sense here. That's not in the passage. These are not... Look at, the, look at verse 3. These are not spontaneous words. You see that? These are not spontaneous utterances. Verse 3, we see two affirmations. You see it? There are two ways to live. Two affirmations in verse 3. Jesus is either accursed by you or you confess Him as Lord. You are either worshiping Christ as Lord or you curse Him as you follow idols and yourself. You can't add Jesus to your idols to your little gods and loves, it must be Jesus alone. I don't know how else I can say it. You're either with Christ, you're either in Christ, or you are not. Friends, this logic is the same logic Jesus used in Matthew 6, verse 24. No man can serve two masters. 
For he, he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Paul teaches from the foundation up here about spiritual gifts. What a foundation it is, the gospel. True spiritual people are those who confess Jesus as truly God and truly man, has come to save, and he's worthy of complete trust and devotion. They know about their pagan background, and they know that they came to confess Christ as Lord by the miraculous grace of the Holy Spirit. Glory to God alone. Think about what this foundation does. When Paul sets this foundation going into gifts, it crushes any sense of spiritual elitism. He crushes it. There's no room for elite people in the church. What's that about? Paul's going to drive home the work of the one Spirit, the same Spirit, the same God is at work in the diversity of gifts in the church. He's going to drive home that there are many parts of the body, but there's one body and one head. God has assigned a role. There's no hierarchy. All the gifts people exercise flow from the lordship and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Do you follow me this morning? I'm seeing a few heads nod. Okay. So friends, here's some application. Let's let this challenge our pride today. It's good just to, to note how often, man, I'm prideful. That was, that's pretty prideful of me to have that thought or to act that way. We are tempted to think highly of our walk. We are tempted to think highly of our evangelism, highly of our acts of service. Did you see what I've done? To think highly of our studies, our teachings, our whatever. So let's let the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the Son of God, sent to die on that cruel cross and be raised for our justification, for the intervention of our saving, humble us. Let's be humbled at the cross of Christ. You know, this is a great place to insert Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Listen to Paul's words. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Paul teaches the same things often, just in different ways and different applications. Same truth. Confessing Jesus as Lord is not the product of human insight. It's not because you and I were so smart nor does it derive from human will, which is fallen. On the contrary, confession of Jesus Christ in truth among, some, in, among people represents the activity of the Holy Spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit at work? When people are submitting to Jesus Christ. There's some people who are looking for a worship experience. You know what they should be looking for? People obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the Holy Spirit is at work. He works in human beings so they recognize and submit to the Lordship of Christ. Pastor, am I a spiritual person? Are you submitting to Christ as Lord? Have you counted the cost? 
denied yourself and followed Jesus as Lord? Are you, are you yielding to Jesus Christ in your life? Not just at church. Friends, is there any room for us to focus on pursuing competition in a church for position and influence? Aren't we free from keeping up appearances and saving face? Because we all need more than faces saved, we need our souls saved. Whatever we're tempted to feel strong in today, you think, it, what, is, what do you feel strong in today? Whatever you're tempted to feel strong in today, that is not Christ, needs to be rejected. We are nothing outside of His grace except doomed sinners headed for hell. That's who we are. Were it not for His grace. So let's put away prideful competition wherever it's, it, it rears its ugly head. Put on Jesus. Let's deny ourselves and follow Him. We don't sing our own praises like the world does. No, we sing all hail King Jesus. All hail Emmanuel, King of Kings. Lord of Lords, bright morning star, and throughout eternity, I'll sing your praises, and I'll reign with you throughout eternity. Hallelujah. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray, God, today that you would uh, give us more joy where we are weak, Lord, more satisfaction, Lord, where we are hungry for in Christ Jesus. Help us to get our minds off ourselves and more on you. Father, we pray that Jesus, Lord, that your, your Lordship would be evident in our homes, in our workplace, wherever we go, that the, the, the evidence of the Holy Spirit would be on display in our lives as we yield to Jesus Christ. We praise you in, in his mighty name. Amen and amen.